All right. In my, uh, in my zeal to do better this time, when it comes to discussion and, uh, and such, I'm going to start us right now. That's right. No. So, uh, good morning. We are uh, coming back this morning to, uh, we're in chapter 5, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Can I pray for us? Uh, to help us to calm our minds and to ask His blessing on, on our time. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are creatures 100% utterly in need of you this morning. We, that's the case for us all the time. Uh, it's also the case that we regularly forget that, uh, downplay it, come to think that it's something maybe more like 80%. Uh, but we, we are wrong when we think that way and when we live that way. We are completely dependent on you. And we're here by your grace and your strength we want to be here because you have poured your love into our hearts. Um, we have a desire to align our thinking with yours. And yet that desire doesn't get the job done. We need you at every step uh, after we feel that desire, after we sense the need and want more than we are in our, uh, in our own strength. So, Lord, as we look through this, this chapter of uh, this book and we, we try to uh, use it to, to grow spiritually, to grow as mature uh, Christian men and women. Lord, we pray for your help. And we thank you, Lord, that you're so faithful to us uh, to, to sanctify us and to conform us into Jesus' image. Use this time to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so there is, there's a little example he gives way in the middle of this chapter that I'm going to pluck and bring up to the very opening uh, minute here. All right, so imagine a living room, and there's a woman sitting on the couch, and her, her husband comes in and sits down beside her, puts his arm around her, and she snuggles in close to him, right? And he leans in, and he whispers to her, and he says, dear, of all the women I love, tonight I think I love you the most, what is her reaction to that, to that statement right there? Is, that, is she feeling pretty encouraged uh, at that moment? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she's mad. She's not encouraged. She's hurt. And she's hurt because the, of what, what the Bible says about love is actually true, and that is that true love is a jealous love. That's what true love is. Um, God has true love for us, doesn't he? His children, uh, he has true love for us. When you take that fact and you combine it with, the, uh, with another fact, and that is that we live our lives with sinful hearts, uh, hearts that are not fully devoted to him, what that means is that we will expect to live a life that has a struggle in it. Uh, the title of this chapter is Understanding Your Heart Struggle. Uh, there's going to be a battle going on because God loves us with a jealous love and we live with hearts that are not fully devoted to him. Uh, and he's going to uh, keep talking to us um,
it, it, in ways, if you're like me, if you were here, was it last year for the, when we watched him talk through the, the, the marriage uh, seminar and we've, we've done some other studies of his, there are certain themes that come up no matter what sorts of relationships he's talking about because the problems uh, are, are the same in, 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 in those different spheres. Um, one of his focuses here in this book, as we've seen, is uh, to help us to think about ourselves in the church in such a way that we can be most useful to others. And he's going to keep doing that this morning. We'll be talking about that. Uh, but he is also going to be counseling us a little bit individually uh, as well. Uh, here is what we will cover this morning. Uh, whether you take notes or just having kind of an outline is, is helpful to you. Uh, we're going to talk about dueling kingdoms. Uh, we're going to be uh, moving toward understanding. The title of this is Understanding Your Heart Struggle. So he, he's going to say, to understand our heart struggle, there are a number of sort of sub-realities going on in, in the midst of that that we need to understand. We need to understand what God is doing as he uh, does not allow us to be comfortable where we are, but he engages in a struggle with us in our hearts. So we need to understand what God is doing. We need to understand that God knows best and gives best. Okay? We need to understand how warped our perception of our own needs often, often can be. Then we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at two passages in particular, uh, thinking about, okay, if... So this, this is what the struggle is for us. These are the things we need to understand that we are failing to understand so often. When the Bible talks about this, what does it say is the, not just the diagnosis, but the, uh, the, the treatment? What is the Bible's solution to, to, these, uh, to these struggles and to the heart struggle that we find ourselves uh, going through? Uh, please, as always, as we're going through this, jump in with, with comments, questions as, as you... Uh, as you'd like, and I'm trying to move efficiently so I do a better job than I did last time of having us have time to, to talk. So, um, first, dueling kingdoms. I wasn't supposed to put that up yet. Hold on, there we go. Um, James 4, we're going to look at James chapter 4 here a little bit later. Um, but let me just read the first two verses to us uh, to, to kick this, this section off. James says this, you may remember this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Do you remember when he asked that question? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And Tripp spends a lot of time in this chapter talking about this idea of desire, our our desires. Uh, You and I are always desiring isn't that what, what is behind every decision that we make? Um, we are driven by our desires. Jonathan Edwards talked about that a lot, and he said that it's, it's the affections that uh, direct and fuel and drive the will. This is just how God has made us. Um, and Tripp says this, he says, At the foundation of all worship, whether true or false, is a heart full of desires. Desire is at the heart of worship. And James, in that passage, in James 4, is calling us to think about the nature of those desires that we experience. So many of those kind of things, they just happen to us unconsciously, and we'll let them drive us unconsciously unless we stop and try to, 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 to look introspectively and ask, what's, what's really going on? 
here with these, with these desires. Um, we have a default when it comes to that, when it comes to what drives our desires, what, what, uh, what leads them to be the driving desires that they are in our lives. Uh, the, the, the natural, the, the starting point for us all is, um, and this is where he's going with the dueling kingdoms, what we want to do uh, automatically, inherently, is to set up our own kingdom. So I live and I walk through my day, and um, my desires align with the furthering of my kingdom. If someone gets in the way of the advance of my kingdom, we have a problem that needs to be dealt with. Right? Have you ever uh, sensed that? We, we don't usually put it that way. That, that's, that's way too selfish of us to say it that way. So we find other ways to say it. Uh, but that's, that's what's going on with us. Um, the problem with that, for us as Christians, you remember that husband at the start? That's the problem that we have. The problem is that... Um, we, we serve a God who has rescued us and who loves us, and he loves us with a jealous love because that's what true love is, and he truly loves us. So my kingdom, uh, as the driving force of my life, I've got a fundamental problem there because I am being led and, and taught and guided by a God who's jealous for me. So Tripp puts the struggle this way. He says, our desire, <clears throat> our desire to set up our own kingdom is in direct conflict with the king who has come to rule in our hearts. This is the war beneath all others. Um, what we're going to see this morning has a lot of, of direct applications in, in really every realm. I mean, we're going to be thinking about the horizontal realm of us and the Lord uh, the vertical realm, that's vertical. I know math. And the horizontal realm that all of that comes from, this is where this first big quote come, comes up here. Um, I put it in two slides so that the font could be larger so everybody could see it. I'm getting better. So uh, you can just, I'll, I'll read this out loud. Um, he says, think about it this way. If my heart is ruled by a certain desire, there are only two ways I can respond to you. If you are helping me get what I want, I will be happy with you. But if you stand in my way, <coughs> but if you stand in my way, I will be angry, frustrated, and discouraged when I am with you. There will be times when I will wish you weren't in my life. My problem is not you or the situation we are in together. My problem is that a legitimate desire, and look, sometimes they're not legitimate desires. But usually, well, often they are legitimate desires. Um, my problem is that a legitimate desire has taken over my heart and is now in control. It is not wrong to desire relaxation at the end of a long day. It is wrong to be ruled by relaxation in such a way that I am irritated with anyone who gets in the way. I hope I'm not the only one who can really relate to. I hate it when he picks the examples then. Anyway. It is not wrong to desire the tender attention of your husband. It is wrong to be so ruled by it that your days are filled with bitterness because of its absence and your nights are filled with manipulative attempts to get it. 
Don't miss the point of this story. Now, what you don't know is that he prefaced this with a personal example of his own, how he has done this. That's what he's referring to. And he says, don't miss the point of this story. My anger was not caused by the people and situations I encountered. My anger was caused by completely legitimate desires that came wrongly to rule me. Do you see the the distinction he's making? That, to me, is so helpful because it saves us from wasting our time with misplaced guilt. I I can get the general idea of this and then just walk around feeling guilty all the time about the desires themselves... When it's, the desire wasn't the problem. The, desire, the, the problem is that the desire came to rule me like this. And I just I so appreciate the way that he had put that. It's not wrong to desire relaxation at the end of the day. It's wrong to be ruled by that desire so that I'm irritated with anyone who gets in the way. Because what has happened then? Well, what's happened is I've come back into the place where I think of my life as my kingdom. You've, messed, you've gotten in the way of the plans for my kingdom. The marching orders for the, for the evening were Blake's relaxation. Did, did you not get the memo? Those were the marching orders. And you're not, you're, not, uh, you're not bowing the knee. That's the problem that we're having here. So how can we fix this problem? And I'm going to be irritated with you until we fix it. I might wish you weren't here because it, when, we, when we put ourselves in this language, it gets just nasty. Um, but we've all been there. We've all we've, we've been there. So this is uh, this is what he's talking about when he's talking about dueling kingdoms. Uh, and we'll keep we'll keep talking about that a little bit. But let's go to um, this section of uh, of understanding. So here's the first question that we want to seek some understanding in here: uh, understanding what God is doing. When he is not just, we've got to be careful about our language. He's not allowing these kind of conflicts to happen. He is, he is ordaining these conflicts. He means to be worshipped by all of me, not 60% of me. And he's seeing to it that my kingdom mentality keeps rubbing up against his reality so that I'm forced to deal with the fact that he is the king. And that's not mean. That's what love is. That's what true love looks like. So uh, it's in that section, in this section, that he brings up that example of the, of the husband. Dear, of all the women I love, I think tonight I love you the most. Um, and we said there that God is jealous for our heart. Um, this is, a, this is a, a really important truth, and it's a truth that we have to supplement. Well, we have to take that and put it into what we mean when we talk about God loving us. Um, He is teaching us to understand his love this way. This is how God loves us. And we have to be very conscious about this in our dealings with ourselves and in our dealings with with each other. Because here's here's the kind of thing this can drive us to to ask ourselves. Um, Raise your hand if you would say in here, um, I, I don't want, I would prefer it for God not to love me. I don't want him to love me. Please, please stop it. There's nobody is raising their hands. We don't, we don't want that. We want God to love us. We are, we are overjoyed when we read in his word that he loves his children. I mean, that's a great source of comfort for us. 
Um, so this brings us to this kind of question. Okay, I say I want God to love me. But what about... So let's see. His love is true love. True love is a jealous love. Um, when he loves me by putting circumstances in my life that prove to me that I'm not on the throne, or when I've grabbed the arms of the throne and he has to shake it to knock me out of the throne, um, or when he takes an idol I've put on the throne and he pulls it off of that throne, uh, how do I respond to him then? Aren't those exactly the times when we struggle with anger toward God? And confusion, why would he be doing this? And yet that morning, we had, we had thanked him that he was willing to love us. We, we fail to recognize that that's what his love looks like. It's not all that his love looks like. He, he fills our days with so how many joys and, and good things. Um, but when that wife is sitting beside her husband and she hears that, She's not okay with that. She's hurt by that. She doesn't want him to love her um, tonight more than everyone else that he loves. She wants him to love her and only her. And that's how God's love is toward us. He will not stop reaching out in love toward us until we love him and only him. But we're stubborn and we're sinful. And so sometimes that creates conflicts. And not just the the conscious conflicts of my own wrestling, but I'm talking about sometimes he takes things from me. Sometimes he... um, (coughs) He, He humbles us, right? And in those moments, it's very important. If we're going to be able to think uh, worshipful thoughts, it's important that we really understand this. He is loving me when he brings those things into my life. He's, he's planned and promised and told me of an eternity that I will enjoy with him with zero conflicts. Those trillions and trillions of days are coming. He's already secured them. That's what he's got planned. He, he doesn't enjoy making his children suffer. He's got paradise planned for us. But in the meantime, he's got 30 or 60 or 70 or 90 years that he's going to teach us to love him. That's not on my notes, so now I'm worried that we're going to go through. Um, okay, so the next, uh, next thing we need to understand is that God knows best and gives best. And we've been sort of talking about that already. He gives this great example. Look at this here. Look at that, James. I've got a picture on mine there. Uh, of a waiter. And he says this, and at a certain, I'm going to read this, but at a certain point I'm going to put uh, a, a sentence in here up on the screen. He says, um, Imagine going to a restaurant and ordering a 16-ounce medium-rare prime rib steak with a huge baked potato slathered in butter and sour cream. The waiter takes down your order and disappears into the kitchen, 
only to emerge 20 minutes later with a dry salad. You say to the waiter, this is not what I ordered. And he responds, well, I took down your order, but I began thinking about your age and your health, and I decided that what you ordered was the worst thing you could possibly have. So I had the chef prepare this salad. What would you say to the waiter uh, in response to that? Now, we know what we'd say. That, Thank you, um, but that's not your place. All you need to do is to take, make sure my order is done right. So go ahead and go try again, right? Uh, that's not your place. When a certain set of desires rules our hearts, we reduce prayer to the menu of human desire. Worse, we shrink God from his, <coughs> from his um, position of all-wise, all-loving, <coughs> all all-powerful Father to a divine waiter. Um, that we expect to deliver everything that we ask. Sorry. <clears throat> and then he says this. This is what I'm putting on the screen. But God will not shrink to this size. Does it, does it um, annoy you that God will not shrink to that size of the, of the waiter? From all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful Father to the divine waiter. God will not shrink to this size. He will only be our Father and King who, according to Psalm 103, satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God will not shrink to this size. Is, is it a loving thing that he refuses to shrink to that size? The problem with the waiter comparison is that when we take God into this situation, uh, it absolutely is his place to give us what he thinks best for us. Right, But our reaction to him is the same as that of the waiter. Now, um, we've been talking about, and he brought up desires. What does this say about our desires themselves? And, and what a desire... Uh, excuse me. No, no, no. Um, we're talking now about a desire that has become uh, a demand. Let's think about that for a minute. What does this say about our demands that we go through life? We all have certain implicit demands. My life will include X. Right? Um, it should be up here. Yeah. Uh, boy, listen to this. Dem- have you ever heard a better definition of demand than this? He says, demand is a closing of my fists over a desire. Taking a desire. I have decided that I must have what I have set my heart on and nothing can stand in the way. And listen to this. I am no longer comforted by God's desire for me. I am threatened by it. Because God's will um, potentially stands in the way of my demand. I can no longer conceive of a good life, or you could say moment, or day, or relationship. I I can no longer conceive of a good life without this thing. I can think of specific times where I've done this consciously. Can you? Where the, there's something that you, you love, and probably it's a good thing, and you, you're hit with a realization, I, I am actually afraid of God because I know that he doesn't just play according to my rules, and he might take this. His sovereignty over my life does not comfort me right now. It terrifies me. 
Because what, what if he doesn't think about this like I do? What if he has other plans for this? And now my conception of a good life is completely warped. Completely warped. That's the danger of the demands uh, sort of approach to life. It's a fundamental doubting that God knows what is best and he gives what is best. He really does. When I receive from him and it doesn't feel best, it's because I got a pea brain. I don't know anything compared to what he knows. He knows so much more about what he's doing and what's coming next. I don't know any of that. That's the reason that there's the disparity between, between these things. That's not to say that our sufferings in this life aren't suffering. They are. He knows that they're suffering. But we can trust that he's bringing good things for us. Any thoughts on that? Any, uh, I want to try to stop at points because I know I'll talk us to death here. Uh, he's, he, he goes next into the, the notion, what this says to us about how we define our needs. How do I define my list of needs in, in this life? That's a, it's a convicting uh, concept. It's, it's in, I, I just thought of this this morning. When you look into Scripture, it puts the bar for needs fairly high. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, With food and covering we shall be content. Um, and it's interesting because those very things, that's what Jesus in, the, in, in Matthew 6, he says, uh, don't worry about what you will eat and drink and what you will put on because your heavenly Father knows that you what? He knows that you need them. And he says, seek first his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't worry about your needs because he knows what your needs are and he, and he, he, will, he will provide for you. Um. I've got a lot more things on my list of needs than that. I don't know about you. But if, if, if your treatment of me doesn't align with my list of needs, then now we have a problem. Right? So he says, if I'm convinced that I truly need something, and you have said that you love me, it seems right to expect that you will help me get it. Now, I hope you can see how this is... I mean, I'm kind of just... Uh, mostly thinking of that in the, in the vertical sense with the Lord. But this is, this is, I think he's talking, especially in the chapter, about our relationships with each other. This is how we treat one another um, when, it comes to, when it comes to these things. And he describes what I've put on, onto this little uh, set of pictures here. I, I think this is a progression that we can all relate to. So we have perceived needs. Um, those needs, because I've decided that they are needs um, and you love me, then they become a part of my expectations for my life experience. Uh, if those expectations then aren't met, the result is disappointment. And you've said you love me and you've disappointed me regarding my needs. Um, so the next step, the last step is punishment. It's time for punishment to be doled out. I'm going to let you know. Um, do you relate to that, to that uh, series of maybe some other ways to, other words we could even supply in there as well? But I think it's a pretty good one. Any thoughts or comments on that? Mike? Mike? 
Well, it, it, yeah, sure. So I, I think, I think he's, he, I think he picked that word, trying to cut to the chase and say, look, here's what we're doing, right? Um, when you have not, yeah. No, that's right. Well, that that spouse, what are they going to say about that? I'm just so I'm just hurt right now. You know, I mean. They're not going to say, I'm sticking it to him or her. I think we're supposed to say that our, only our wives do that. You, can, you weren't supposed to say that out loud. But, um. <laughs> but no, that's, that's absolutely right. And that's, that's the significance of this kind of a study to me is so much of what we're talking about in these things, because it's our default, because it's what we naturally do, we don't think about, about those things consciously very often. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. The best time to do that is when you're in the midst of a conflict and you point that out to the other person. That's the best time to do that. Then they're very receptive to it and they will, uh, right? This gives us a great opportunity because we're not talking about any specific conflict of mine. So there's no defensiveness. And we can really try to think honestly about our own situations and go, oh, man, yeah, all right. I see what you're saying. (laughs) I've had a few of those moments in the last week looking through this chapter. So, Um, any other thoughts on that, Rob? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of grace and patience that we. Oh, that we are given in these things. Uh, we're going to move now. The rest of the time, we're going to spend looking at, somewhat closely into two passages in particular that really that speak directly to to what we're talking about. Uh, the first we've already been in a, a little bit, and that's James four. Uh, but we're going to read uh, a good deal more of this. You might turn there, uh, James four. We've already seen verses one and two. And I'll point out to you a couple of things here. Those first two verses described, they asked questions about horizontal conflict, right? What's the source of quarrels and fights among you? So he's talking about horizontal conflict there. But when he moves to to the solution for these things, I think it's important to notice that he, he does not begin with any sort of horizontal. He begins with vertical. Now, verses 7 through 10 is describing, describing uh, actions that need to be taken here vertically. Verse 11 gets into some horizontal. Um, in fact, he diagnoses things in verse 4. Look, look there. He's been describing all of this horizontal conflict between people. But then verse 4 he says, there it is, um, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's interesting to me that that's where he goes after those first couple of verses, talking about the horizontal conflicts that we have with each other. The problem that has driven all of this discontentment that they're feeling, resentment, hatred, uh, inability to forgive, and how many of our problems 
between us? Did we just really sum up right there with those four things? Discontentment, resentment, hatred, inability to forgive. He says the problem is that you have befriended the world. You have taken on, I think this is what, he, what he's saying, that you have taken on the thought processes, you've taken on the worldview of our friend the world. And that makes you an, that, that, that puts you in the position of, of the enemies of God. Your thinking has come into conflict with him now as you have aligned your thinking with the world around you. Um, look down at verse 7. Let me read verses 7 through 10. He's coming now to, to some commands here. He's giving solutions, telling them what to do. Verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And Tripp comments on that, uh, and he says this. I've got it on the screen here. The biblical logic is clear. You can't keep the second great commandment unless you are keeping the first. Only in bowing before God and submitting to his desires can we really turn to one another in peace and love. Any agenda for change that forgets this vertical causality will prove temporary and cosmetic. And I like that he put it that way. That doesn't mean that there will, if, if you forget this, that, that you will never do anything that will improve anything in the situation with someone else. He's saying your efforts are being given toward change that will prove temporary and will prove cosmetic. I mean, how many, how many relationships have we have we been in that have gone sour and then they've been patched up so that it's friendly, but it's never the same again. You've lost something, that, right? Uh, that's a cosmetic uh, change to that situation. And he goes on and he says, but grace and blessing are promised to those who humble themselves before him. This is God's way of change. And if we think about the whole, what we've said about this chapter, I mean, that's, that's it right there. Uh, God brings us into places where we find ourselves in conflict with others. Doing this exposes some things to us. And fundamentally what he does with these situations through our lives is he teaches us that we are far too high in our own thinking. He teaches us to humble ourselves. And he's so good at it. He has so many different... If he, if he controls all things, he has an infinite number of means at his disposal to do this, to, to humble us. And if that's what jealous love looks like, then you can know that's his intent for us. Uh, go down a little bit to verse 13. Woo. Starting in verse 13, he says, Come now, and I'll, I'll read this to you, and then uh, um, tell you why I, I wanted us to see this as well. This seems like a bit of a change here. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Um, I I had us read that to help you to understand what I was meaning when I was saying uh, the diagnosis that 
God is giving us here through his word is that fundamentally we have a worldview problem. We have a worldview change that needs to happen. Uh, His command here in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Uh, You know, I hope, that that's got nothing to do with magic words, right? He's not, we're not, I've I've been with people before that would say something and then they'd go, I mean, if the Lord wills it. That's not what he's, he's not saying we have to put that statement in. So what is he saying then? If that's not his point, what do you think is his point? Yeah, absolutely. He's leading us to learn to think in a godly way. And we've said uh, before in this study that when we talk about thinking in a godly way, what we mean is thinking in a way that always, everywhere takes the existence of God into account and chooses to think of him as he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. So, in so in this, as, as a solution to all of these conflicts and quarrels and strife and discontentment, he says, cry out to God and repent, but... <clears throat> As you're thinking through all of these things, your problem is you have forgotten the truth about who I am in your life. And that makes me think about two weeks ago or two, two sessions ago, we, we, we looked at the, he called them the three pieces of rebar that go through the, the narrative, the, the redemptive story. Do you remember that? If you were here, <clears throat> um, where am I? Oh, um, they were the, the themes of the sovereignty of, of God, the glory of God as the point of all things, and the grace of God. We live in a place where grace can be found. Um, I learned to see the world through those lenses. That's what James says is the solution to this. I have to learn to view my life, those in it, what happens, through those lenses. That is the solution to this great heart struggle that we are looking at in this chapter. Um, now, the next, the next passage that I want us to, to look at, and he brings this to us, uh, Galatians chapter 5 is the other. Now, you'll definitely want to turn here, because I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Uh, I will, but in, in pieces, and kind of, you won't be able to follow it. So turn to Galatians 5 and find verse 13. And about this, what we're about to read... Tripp says, like James, Paul's logic here is simple. He reduces our living to two foundational lifestyles. Our lives are either shaped by indulging the sinful nature or by self-sacrificing love. That's, what it, that's, what, that's his claim here for this passage. So I put those two up here on the, the screen on, in columns. And what I've tried to do is, uh, as we read through verses 13 through 26... I'm going to put these pieces up where they belong. And you see if you agree or not with the titles of these columns that he's given us. Right? Uh, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's that word desires again. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And here goes this list, and I've just abbreviated on the screen because I couldn't get the font to get the right size with putting them all on there. But here's what he says. The, f- the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we'll stop there. Now, I kind of checked. I, was, I, I thought it might be helpful to you because I was a little confused. When he says in verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit... Um, we translate that in, differently in some other translations. Walk by the Spirit. The word literally means to be in line with a person or a thing considered as standard for one's conduct. To hold to agree with. So this is what we're commanded. Now you see what I've done in putting them up here and there on both sides. I look at them and I, I, think, I think I'm persuaded by his, uh, his statement that, uh, James, that Paul is describing two foundational lifestyles here. There's something fundamentally indulgent on the left side. Indulgent of the flesh, indulgent of the sinful nature. And what really marks the other side so much comes down to self-sacrifice. If serve one another, um, these things are summed up, he says, in love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, How self-sacrificing is it to refuse to gratify the desires of the flesh? It's incredibly self-sacrificing. To wage war against a piece of myself for the sake of holiness, for the sake of obedience. Um, the fruit of the Spirit. I hope you can see what, what he's doing there with those two categories. Um, let me read again from Tripp here. Uh, in, he's pointing at verse 15. Verse 15 said, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He says, in verse 15, Paul follows his command with a stern warning that what we do and say makes a difference. You may have just so far been thinking about, um, thinking about this from the point of view of your own sanctification. Where do I need to grow? But this is, this is the part that helps me remember. He's not, Tripp is not just talking to me about me. The whole point here is we need to recognize that we are uh, people in need of change who have been commanded and called to help others who are in need of change, too. He doesn't give these things to us for us, simply. This is, this is outward as well. 
So this is what he, he says. He says, your, based on verse 15, your words and actions can lead a person into temptation. You can crush a person's hope. You can do and say things that weaken someone's faith. If God intends us to be instruments of change, then we are people of influence for good or for evil. And I think we've said it before. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's unfortunate because there's not a thing you can do about it. That's how you have been made, and you will influence others constantly. Which just means, well, I guess this is something that better become an area of careful thought and intentionality then. There's nothing like, uh, well, I'm sure that there are some things like this, but becoming a father and having children whose lives depend on me, and not just their lives, but in, to such a degree, their character, uh, what they think. It's the same kind of, you, you, at some point, when they're little, you just go, oh, what have I gotten myself into here? You can't, there's no going back, and what I do here will have a, this is the place God's put me. I mean, it's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. He's saying that's what we all, we are all in that situation with each other. Um, Now that looks, so this, this may be strange, but I decided, okay, so how does this look when we're thinking about various giftedness? We've talked before about the Bible speaks of the gifts he's given to us in his church. Some of them are speaking gifts and some of them are serving gifts. And we're not all created equal. We don't all have the same gifts. So how does this look in some different capacities? Do you remember when we talked about that a little bit? Um, I decided, let's not talk about any of us personally. Let's keep it third person. So I'm going to talk, let's talk about your uncle. Thought, family member, sense of obligation. So your, uh, there's your uncle right there, okay? Let's describe him and think about some things. Your uncle is a man. He doesn't live in your town so he doesn't go to church with you. He is a Christian, and he's trying to live obediently to the Lord. Uh, But he's in a rough time in his life, and so he's feeling like his strength is, and you can relate to this, right, in those seasons. He's trying to be obedient, but he's feeling like his strength is waning, um, and his energy is waning. Now, he goes to, uh, to a church in his town. Look at this. Don't be jealous, James. I just figured that one out right there. He goes, to, uh, he goes to a church in his town, and some people there, he gets to know people, he invests in that body, he believes in the church. Um, some people there who are gifted in serving and giving, generosity and acts of mercy, those are some of the things that the Romans 12 list of spiritual gifts name that God has given to some, right? Um, or you could put it, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about people who, are, who have the gift of helps. They, they, they have been equipped in this way, right? Some of those people in his church. Um, they, they notice him because they're gifted especially. They, they, they take those gifts seriously and they, they draw near to him. Um, And so you hear one day from your uncle that this is happening. He's being served, and he's being blessed. And you sit there and you know, um, boy, he's learning some things there. He is having it proven to him. 
proven to him um, that God is a God who does not leave his children in their own strength, right? Now, you still got the same uncle, but he doesn't go to that church. He goes to a different church. So here we go. He goes to a different church in that town. Now, that church also has been gifted spiritually by God because God gifts all of his churches. So he sits amongst the people who God has equipped and called for certain, for certain uh, manifestations of his love to the body, right? <coughs> um, and he, he goes there. He sits. He tries to, to, uh, to jump in. He's suffering, and his strength is waning. But the, he's got a problem there, and that is that the members of that church are not intentional about their influence. They're not intentional about the obligation that their gifts have, have, have brought with them. And so in his suffering, he hears crickets. Right? Um, and you hear about that, and it, it bothers you a lot because you, you, you know as you're thinking there. My uncle is learning something there, too. Um, his fellow members have taught him something there. Right? Um, I think they're living out what Tripp just said, that you can crush a person's hope. Your uncle is growing bitter in his struggles with a boss or a spouse or a parent. Um, Let's pretend he goes back over here. All right. So what happens? He shares those things with a friend at his church, and that guy uses the wisdom that God has provided in a number of ways. Because that guy has learned to see life from the point of view that stands on the rebar of the themes of Scripture. He shares verses with him to think about, but more than that, he sees things more accurately. So he sees through. You know what we do in those hard times. We come up with some excuses for things, some justifications for some things. Right? His friend lovingly sees through those uh, circumstances and those excuses because he remembers God's desires for this man, your uncle. And he remembers God's promises to this man. And he speaks to him in a way that highlights those things as he is busily drawn near to him. Now that may well irritate your uncle at first when he kind of sees through some things and kind of talks to... to to, uh, you know, you know what that looks like. It's probably not what your uncle might have been looking for when he shares some of those things. But your uncle was just loved. And he was just protected by being led onto the rebar of Scripture. He was just loved by the reminder that the sovereign God of creation has been gracious to us. Uh, he is loving us. In fact, he's loved us in the highest way, which is that he's letting us play a part in displaying his glory through any number of circumstances that we might find ourselves walking through. And he gets to be reminded of that because he's at a place where his brothers and sisters love him, making use of whatever means of gifting that the Lord has equipped them with. And it's not always what we want to hear, but it is always what we need to hear. And it's what your uncle needs to hear. Because your uncle has to live his life within two realities. There we go. Uh, As do you. We we, we will live every second of our life um, 
experientially knowing the reality of this war for the heart that, that we're engaged in. It's never going to stop. But he also has to be reminded of the reality of his union with Christ. And that that's in fact what accounts for the war that's going on. And this is the last quote here. And then I'm essentially finished. Which means we have five minutes for discussion and questions and conversations. So here's what he says. We must humbly admit we are sinners while we lay hold of the hope of our union with Christ. We don't simply suffer. We suffer as sinners with a deep propensity to run after God replacements. And as believers, we don't just suffer as sinners, but as those who have been united with Christ and therefore no longer live under the mastery of sin. We bring these two realities to times of blessing as well. Holding on to both truths is the only way to do battle with our own hearts and the only way to be part of what God is doing in the lives, in our lives and others. And then he says, this is a perspective on life that only those who believe God's word will ever embrace. So it sort of puts a rhetorical question to us then, I guess. Do you believe God's word? I think he's right that this is what we find there. Convicting, but terribly encouraging. What, what are your thoughts as we, as we wrap up this chapter? Well, that's what's so important. He doesn't get into that in this chapter. But thankfully, we've heard him talk about, about a number of things in other contexts and things like that. Um, I see this as, the, as one of the great warnings to remember the perspective of, of Scripture. But, you know, I mean, he, he'll say in other places, and he'll... He'll point to what the Bible says about those things, that love does two things when it comes to sin. Love overlooks sin where it can, but love confronts sin where it cannot be overlooked. And that, too, is love. And, I mean, those are the times... I'm thinking of those times in some of what we, we read in here with, with some of the conflict. is We will not be able to escape conflict because of the nature, because we are, we are living in a sinful place and we're sinners. Um, but as we are walking through those conflicts, we have to remember the big picture. So when I'm in that and I have been wronged, repentance needs to happen. I need to be able to call for repentance. Um, but what do we usually do in those times? You know, there, 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 are, there are ways to be genuinely wronged and to respond to it in a way that fails to love that person. And I think that's what he's calling us to, is remember what it really looks like to love someone in, in the midst of these kinds of times. Does that, I don't know if that gets much to, to it, but um, I've always liked that dichotomy of love overlooks, it is your glory to overlook an offense, he says, and love confronts, and both of them. There's, there's two sides to that with love. Rob? Well, that's, that's the hope. That's why we, we can never stop getting up when we have fallen down, when we've been knocked over. And I don't know if that's all of what he was pointing to with this or not, but um, I mean, that was my thought when I read the two realities that we have to keep in mind. It's the second one that, that provides the confidence um, and even the obligation then. If that's the victorious kingdom and this one is, is 
failing and passing away. And when I find myself at times caught up in this kingdom, I don't just have every good reason to run back to this. We never hold on to the things that we know are passing away. Any other thoughts, comments? So that's chapter 5, Understanding Your Heart Struggle. Thank you, guys. Let me pray for us real quick, and we'll close. Father, we, we are grateful. Oh, Lord, we have so far to go. We all have so far to go. And we just thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Father, we look ahead now to the service, and uh, we thank you for it. We ask you to help us to, uh, to align our thinking with what's about to happen. And Lord, to the extent that our circumstances make it so that our emotions uh, are not reflecting the nature of what we're doing here, Lord, help us to think on the truth um, of, of the gospel of your Son. That's what we're centered around here. It's what we're celebrating Help us to think about it enough so that our feelings shift to the nature of what we're doing here. Help us to be able, as best we can, to sing from joyful hearts. And Lord, when we cannot, we thank you that you hear our singing anyway. And you are, uh, you are patient and you know our frame. We pray that those who are grieving would be comforted here today. And those who are rejoicing would have company. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.